So would you join me in Romans chapter 6 this morning? Romans 6, I thought we would finish Romans 6 this morning, uh, but we'll have to do at least another week on it. Um, can I just kind of, by way of introduction, every time we open the Bible, we're always at a little bit of a disadvantage because it is spiritual and we're carnal, we're earthly. Uh, it is always, always going to be over our head. It is always going to be too deep. I mean, we can see John 3.16 on a billboard. We can hear someone sing it in a song. It is always over our head. We're never going to get that unless the Lord opens up our, our minds and illuminates is the word that the scripture gives. And so I find this, when I ask the Lord to do that in my life, he does it more often than if I just launch in. So I'm not necessarily going to pray again what I've already prayed earlier in the service, but I want to encourage you throughout. And if your mind starts drifting, ask, just ask the Lord. God, I'm lacking wisdom here. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you, y'all figured this out, right? Romans is not the easiest book in the Bible, but we need it. We really do need it. Uh, it's good for us. It's been good for me. I've got some feedback from last week already, and I heard another one this morning. Someone literally using that. I have been using the truth, not my message, the truth of Romans 6, during my life this week. Uh, and we'll talk more about what that means in a moment. So you need to be praying. You're like, man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm drifting. Lord, draw me back. Help me to get this. Not only for myself, but for me to be able to, to instill it in someone else's life this week or in the next month. So God will honor that prayer. I really do believe that in his people. Uh, this week I had two struggles. I was going to tell you, give you a real quick snapshot into my life this week. I had two real struggles. Number one, what in the world does verse 14 mean? That was a struggle. Really struggled with it. One word. One word cost me lots of time. Because I'm thinking, I'm preaching on Romans 6, 14 to 23. And here's how I like to do. I want to get a grip on this verse. And then add the next verse kind of like a bead and just keep building back. Okay, let's go back and just do 14, 15. Now let's add 16, 14, 15, 16. Now let's bring in 17, 14, 15. So I usually end up knowing the first part of the passage better than the end. Because I've gone over it so many times. I'm just going to tell you, I couldn't get past verse 14. It just kept, oh, and I'd walk away and go do something. Pick it up a little bit later. And it just, what does this mean? It's not that the individual parts are hard, but one word kept throwing me. I hope I have an understanding of it, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to have a real hard time getting this across. The Holy Spirit's going to have to do something today because I am not equipped. You say, you said two struggles. Second struggle was how much to cover. I won't tell you how much. I really do edit my sermons. I promise I do. That means I'm cutting and get rid of that. Oh, there's a sentence. Ooh, whole paragraph. I have an, an, an amount that I hope to get to. And so when Thursday I had double that amount in my notes, and Thursday's crunch time around here for us to get our screen notes where we need, they need to be. Uh, well, I had a choice. We can preach the longest sermon to date by a lot. That was option one. Option two, cut 40%. Which ones? I just, uh, or split it in two, and the Lord was merciful, and so we're splitting the passage in two. Thought I was preaching down to verse 23. Today we'll really be focusing on verses 14 and 15, so that's what we'll do. So here's what that means. Today's message is part two of last week's message. I don't usually say the titles of the messages. You see them on the handout, 
If someone listens on the website, they can see the title there. Last week's message is Mission Possible, God's Proven Method. God has a way. He is, it is possible to do that. Nothing is impossible, we sang a while ago. Possible for what? We're going to talk about that. We call it sanctification. If you're sitting here this morning and you're a Christian, you're saying, I will never be rid of that sin. It just whips me and I just know I'm always going to be a slave to that one. No, nothing is impossible. God has a proven method. So it's mission possible. Today is part two of that message, but really more than anything, more than that, this week is part one of next week's message. Literally, as I told you, I had all those notes. I had three ideas that were coming out of verses 14 to 23. Today, we're going to do the first thought. So you say, man, Jeff usually outlines more than this. We're only taking point one. It was supposed to be point one, two, and three, but we're going to do point one today because there's plenty for us here. Um, Here's what we've covered. If you have not heard, again, I promise you, this has nothing to do with who preached it. It's what was preached. If I say some things and you're like, I don't even know what that means. I don't know about that. If it has to do with verses 1 through 14, can I encourage you to go back on the website, listen to last week's message, July 16. Listen to that one and then come back and hopefully some of the things we're about to say will make more sense because I've got to hit them quick. Here's what we learn. By the way, this is for Christians. What we learn is that when the Lord saved you, He saved you from the penalty of sin. You are saved from the penalty of sin. You won't face it. But he did a lot more than that because he saved you from the power of sin by giving us three things, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you based on the power of the word of God, foolproof, failproof, any Christian, whether 16 days old in our congregation or 60-some years old in the Lord, And again, there are those represented this morning that fit both categories and all in between. There's a 16-day-old Christian here and there's 60-some-year Christians in here. Without fail, if you will implement these three things from Romans 6 in your life, you will be freed from the power of sin. You say, Jeff, does that mean I won't commit any sin? No, I'm talking about sin will not dominate your life. You will not have as an unbroken pattern of continually sinning habitually. It will not be your lifestyle. Why? Because it cannot be your lifestyle. Go listen again to that previous message. We've learned three things last week. What's the, what's the method? It starts with knowing. Here it is, knowing. What do I have to know? Christian, do you know that the reason you can never wallow permanently in sin, unbroken pattern, I'm not talking about acts of sin. Man, whoa, there's that. And Man, I'm even planning on sinning later. That's horrible, but you can do it. Let's be honest, we've all been there. Mom and dad's gone Thursday night. Your parents gone too? Hey, then we can. We've been there. But it should never be an unbroken pattern of sin. Not talking about acts of sin. How do we know sin will never rule and reign over us like it did before we were saved? Because when you got saved, you were placed in Christ. I'm going to mention this a few times. You were placed in Christ and whatever happens to Christ happens to you. I, I wore this out fourth week, I know. Forgive me. 
Somebody, this is the first week. If you're in a car and the car goes to the aquarium in Atlanta, Georgia, you go to the aquarium in Atlanta, Georgia because you're in the car. If you're in Christ by faith, you say, I was born in Adam, born in sin, but when I trusted Jesus, God moves me and places me in Christ. So he died for sin 2,000 years ago. And verse, I think it's verse 10 says, he died to sin. And if I'm in Christ, then I died to sin. You got to know that. Sin will never be my master again. I'll never have an unbroken pattern of sin. Why? Because I know the Bible says I died to sin. It's dead to me and I'm dead to it. Can't go into all that. Well, what about daily sins and temptations? Again, last week. Second thing, second part of this thing you have to implement is you have to consider it so. You say that's the same thing. It's like verses 1 through 10 keep saying we, we, we're in Christ. We're dead to sin. We are free. We, we, we. And then verse 11 says, you have to consider yourself. So here's what I find. And I think it was Brother Bill was telling me this. Bill Murphy was saying, hey, he's put that into life each week. I said, you know what? That's me. When it's the valley of decision and it's time to make the choice in the moment and sin is tempting, that's when you not only, oh, I've got theology. I'm dead to sin. No, you've got to bring it to the forefront and say, I do not have to obey you like I did before. You're not my master. I am not doing that. And you... Get freedom from sin's power in that moment. The third thing is kind of going on the offense. And this was verses 12, 13, 14. It's where you don't have a lot of time to commit sin because you're presenting the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to the Lord. And so the three steps are knowing and then considering it so. I've I've reached a final conclusion. I've discussed it with myself. I have talks with myself. I rehearse this theology. And I'm busy serving God positively with the members of my body. And you'll find sin will not reign over you. It will not because it cannot. And with that in mind, I want us to now read. We're going to go and read next week's text too just so we get a flow. Let's read verses 14 to 23 and then we'll back up. And mainly look at verses 14, 15 today. So with those three-step process to have victory, Paul says, for sin, Christian, listen, this is not me. You say, well, what I find, and I don't really believe what that preacher said, and because I find this and this and this. Well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law? Hey, that sounds like a plan. So you're saying we're not under law? So are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. God forbid. Never let it be said. It's the idea of verse 16. This will be next week. Lord willing. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? That's pretty self-evident. Read that again. That's pretty easy to comprehend. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, is this true of you? Is verse 7 fit your life? Thanks be to God, Paul says to the Romans, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard, the exactness 
of the teaching to which you were committed. You've become obedient from the heart to this teaching, this doctrine, verse 18. And having been set free, there's clear again, past tense, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And we read that and go, Paul, so you're basically saying we give up one slavery for another slavery, and it's essence, in essence, that is true. But verse 19, Paul says, now easy, it's not a perfect analogy because verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms when he says I'm using that slavery thing. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I've got to give you something that you can relate with. Four, watch this. Here's a command. We'll hit this next week. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. You remember the good old days of sin? How you used your body to do that? Just as you did that, the Bible says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. It means you had no righteousness. But now he wants us to think back about the supposed good old days. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What'd you get out of all that? Take some inventory, look back and you say, wow, the supposed good old, well, I'll tell you what, I got, got a lot of scars, a lot of pain. It cost me a lot of money, a lot of wasted time. Okay, that's just the truth. Verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you're a Christian is the idea. Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And then to wrap the whole section up, that famous verse that if you're ever talking with someone about salvation, you probably use this most times. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In, note the phrase again, in Christ Jesus our Lord. You say there were going to be three points. There were, but we're only going to look at the first one today. You say, what's the first point today? Let's write this down. Christians are above the law. Christians are above the law. But not against the law. I believe that's the point of today's verses. Christians are above the law, but not against the law. Can I use my hands? Let's just keep, make this kind of visual. Christians are above the law. So actually, and we'll explain this in a moment, you're born here under the law, now you live above the law, but you're still under grace. That's the order. So it's grace is over me, and then there's me as a Christian, and there's the law, I'm above. And then somebody that's unsaved here this morning, you don't know, I mean, you don't have the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible teaching you the meaning of this, and here's all you're hearing. Those Christians, the most arrogant bunch I've ever heard in my life. Their, their preacher guy got up and said, they're above the law. And no one got up and stopped him. And by the end, they're all kind of nodding in agreement. They think they're just above the law. Well, that's what the text says. Would you look with me? Actually, for us to look at, and so this is our point, Christians are above the law, but not against the law. That'll be verse 15. 
We'll spend two-thirds of our time in verse 14, one-third in verse 15, but the verse 14 starts with the word for, so that kind of means we've got to take a quick peek back. Look at verse 14, you see it? We're going to have verse 12, 13, and 14 on the screen, even through verse 15. For sin will have no dominion over you. So you see that? So we can't just jump in. Hey, for sin will have no dominion. For means I've got to back up. So what do we find in verse 12? Verse number 12 says this. Here's a very broad do not. So Christian, let me say it again. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Hey, Christian, if you're a Christian, if you're right now saying, hey, that's me, I'm guaranteed, I know I'm a Christian. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it reign. Why? Verse 14 says, for sin will have no dominion. Don't let it reign because it's not going to reign. Don't let it rule because it cannot rule. Verses 1 through 10 gave another reason. Now he says, it's, don't let it because it's not going to. And you say, man, this preacher's really confusing. He is talking in a circle. But then we get to verse 13. Look at it. So there's this broad. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Here's how it reigns. This is a rehearsal. Our bodies are not sinful. Our body has, has desires, passions they're called here. Normal, natural, a desire for food, which can be turned to sin, gluttony, a desire for rest, which can be turned to just being a sluggard all the time, just sleeping, a desire for sex, which can become adultery and fornication, pornography, homosexuality, all of these types of things. That desire for sex is not sinful of itself. God gave us that. A desire to be social and communicable, which can be turned into gossip and slander. So don't let sin, how does sin reign? By by taking these desires and perverting and twisting them. And then all of a sudden, it's acting like it's reigning over your life. Don't let it, Christian. How? Verse 13 gives the specific do not. Do not present your members, the members of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Stop. And the idea here is stop doing this. Stop giving your mind, your ears, your eyes, your mouth, your hands and your feet for when sin wants something done, stop saying, well, hey, I'm good at that. Use my mouth to commit sin. Use my hands to do that sinful act. Stop doing that. Because sin's not going to reign over you. Don't let it rain because it's not going to rain and the way it's going to happen is you're going to stop doing those things. As you know doctrine, consider it so and then he's going to say, get busy doing two positive specific things. Verse 13 in the middle. The first one is broader, real simple. Present, don't present your bodies as instruments or weapons for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God. That means one time, once and for all, God, I give you me and everything about me. I am totally yours. You say, yeah, that's when you get saved. Should be, but often this is a thing later in life. It's like a crossroad of life. Lord, I am once and for all, I'm giving you me. You say, Jeff, you ever done that? I did that when I was 12 years old. And that's when the Lord called me to preach. I got saved when I was nine. I gave him my life. You say, so every day since, well, verse 13b, look at that, is the more specific week by week, day by day. So give yourself once and for all to God and your members, eyes, ears, mouth, hands, feet, mind. Give your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And when that's happening, the reason you should do that is for sin will have no dominion over you. Now, with that as a background, let's write down three facts. Ready? Write these down. Three things we learned in verse number 14. Sin will not have dominion over Christians. Sin will not have dominion over Christians. If you're a Christian this morning, you need to 
just take God's word for it. You say, well, I don't really feel like it. Here's a fact. Here's a fact. Sin will have no dominion over Christians. Second thing we learn is Christians do not live under the law. Christians do not live under the law. Third thing we learn, third fact, Christians live under grace. That's what verse 14 teaches us. For sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under, the law, under law but under grace. You say, so Jeff, what was so tough about verse 14? One word. Does anybody, anybody see which word it is? It's right in the middle. It's the word since. Think with me. Since. When I looked at this this week, I read this over and over, and I'm thinking I'm ready to go to verse 15, but I keep getting stopped. Again, let me put it this way. If verse 14a, sin will have no dominion over you, if that were the finish of a paragraph, and then the second part of verse 14 were the start of another paragraph, and you drop the word since, I didn't struggle with that that much. What really made me struggle was that word since. And so as I'm looking at verse 14, I ask these questions, and I want us to answer these questions in the next few minutes. You need to be praying throughout this whole message. Lord, help me to learn. This is getting a little complicated. It's kind of hard. It's Sunday morning. It's supposed to be my off day, right? Pray. Lord, show me what this means. So we've got three facts. Christians will not have sin having dominion over them. And number two, Christians are not under the law. Three, Christians are under grace. So three questions. What does it mean to be under What does that mean? Question number two. Why are we as Christians not under law and why are we under grace? What does it mean to be under? Why are we not under law? Why are we under grace? That's second. And then the hardest of the three is this. Why does us not being under law and under grace mean that that sin will not have dominion? If the verse just said, hey, sin will have no, no dominion over you. Okay, great. You're not under the law but under grace. Great. But the word since says, sin will not have dominion over you since or because you're not under the law but under So wait a minute. And by the way, I'm going to tell you, it's not the only reason sin will not have dominion, but apparently one of the reasons sin will not, I can never wallow endlessly, habitually, lifestyle in sin. I cannot. One of the reasons is because I'm under Grace and not under the law. But now why? Why does that mean that? And if you're tracking with me, I would invite you this morning to answer within yourself, what would you say is the answer to that? Why Why does us not being under the law and under grace mean sin's not going to reign? Because that one made me struggle. So I had three questions. Let me answer them very, very quickly. Number one, what does it mean to be under? Let me start here. When you drove here this morning, were you subject to the speed limit laws? You are, right? So what does it mean to be under? If you want to write this down, to be under means to be under the authority of. It means to be within the jurisdiction of. So he's saying we're no longer under the law We're under grace. Under means under the authority of within the jurisdiction. 
I don't know how all this works, but I can picture, you know, a car chase starts in one county, goes to another. It starts in one state, goes to another. And then they have to get together and say, yeah, that's actually in our jurisdiction. The other guy says, yeah, it started there, but the worst thing happened here. So we're holding the trial here. It's in our jurisdiction. It's under our authority. And they have to work that all out. Can I tell you something? What that means, what the Bible's saying is, we're, we're born under the law, which means its rules apply and its punishments. God says, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. You need to do that and that and that. And if you don't, those are the rules. These are the punishments. All of us are born under the authority of that and within the jurisdiction of that. We're born under the law. But if you become a Christian, you're moved out from under the law and you're moved under grace. And what that means is that grace's laws, its new laws, I'm going to tell you, supersede the law. Grace's rules and benefits, notice the law's rules and punishments apply to those who are under the law. But if you get moved under grace, all of a sudden, its new laws, its rules and its benefits outrank. It's like this. You read the Bible and you figure out, well, if anyone does that or that or that, that's sin, they're going to be banished from God forever in hell. I've done that. I have no chance. And that's where everyone's born. Until you put your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross, and then you're moved under grace, and grace says, whoa, 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 whoa. You're right, but now that you're under me, listen. Grace is personified saying, I outrank the law. And I give gifts. And I give benefits. And so its rules and punishments no longer apply. And here's a key thought this morning. You say, Jeff, those three facts. Sin will not have dominion. We're not under the law. We're under grace. Yeah, one day when I get to the judgment, all of those things are going to be true. Exactly. But they're true right now. And this is going to be what somebody may have to struggle with this morning. I'm telling you, verse 14 is not just at the judgment. It's in place right now. You as a Christian It will not have, sin will not have dominion over you in this life. Why? Because you are not under the law in this life anymore because you are under grace and its authority and it's more powerful. The law trumps sin. I'm sorry, grace trumps sin. Grace trumps law. Its rules and benefits over power has more authority, more jurisdiction than law. So what does it mean to be under? There's some ideas. Second question was this. Why are we as Christians moved? Well, I've got to keep coming back to it. I know y'all are thinking by now, this guy has nothing else to say. I promise it's not because I don't have something else to say. In Christ is this important. This is everything. The question is, are you in Christ? If you are in Christ, again, here's what it means. If I'm in Christ, that means I'm in him when he's hanging on the cross. He really died. I died in him. That means I'm in Christ when he's buried. I'm in Christ when he comes back to life. But before Jesus died, I'm placed in Christ so that everything he does counts for me. You say, so why am I moved from under law to under grace? Can I give you two reasons? Reason number one, what Jesus did counted for you. Jesus fulfilled the law. And so I'm going to tell you, this is not arrogant. As sinful as I am, I'm a very, I have a horribly sinful past. I still commit acts of sin. I'm a long way from where I need to be. But I'm going to tell you, in God's eyes, I have fulfilled the law. I've kept the law because I'm in Christ. 
And Christ kept the law and his keeping of it counts for me. He did it perfectly and I'm in him and so that counts for me. He gave me his righteousness. Second reason you have to look at chapter 7. Would you look at chapter 7? You say, why, why are we able to be shifted out from under the law and under grace? Look at chapter 7 verse 1. We'll look at this in a couple of weeks. This is important. Do you not know, brothers? It means brothers and sisters. Do you not know? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, the idea of law in general, whether it be Roman law or American law, biblical law, doesn't matter. He says, do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? The law is only binding as long as he lives. And then he gives an example we can relate with. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, you catch this? Death occurred. Death breaks the law. If her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Could I even say it this way? At that moment, at that moment, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. And we can all give our opinions on that, but the fact is, at that moment, she's released. And it would be the same if it was the other way. If the wife died, the husband is released. Verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. I know that's kind of technical. I'm giving you two reasons. You say, Jeff, how are we moved from being under the law to under grace? Two reasons. Christ kept the law and I'm in him. It counts as if I kept the law. Number two, when he died, I'm in him. I died, so I'm now dead to the law. I'm moved out from under the law. I'm now living under grace. It doesn't apply anymore. And that brings us now to this third question. Why does that dynamic mean sin will not have dominion? Why does the fact that we're moved out from under the law and under grace mean sin will have no dominion? You say, Jeff, I think I got the answer. I got the answer on this one. Remember, we died to sin. In chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, Paul says the reason we should not continually wallow in sin and have sin as a lifestyle is because we cannot. We've already died to sin. That's why it's not going to have dominion. Yes, but chapter 6, verse 14 seems to be adding something new. Not only have we died to sin, you're dead to me. I don't have to obey you. But it's hinting there's something in addition to that. And here's what it is. We're going to be answering this question. There's a new dynamic that's at play that keeps a Christian from wallowing continuously in sin. Chapter 7, we won't look at it right now, we'll get there. Chapter 7, Paul's going to go out of his way to make sure that we all understand, listen, this is important, nothing is wrong with the law. Because if you read chapter 5, verse 20, you say, hey, all I know is mankind was living this way, the law came in and sin increased, so there must be something wrong with the law. Nothing is wrong with the law, the only thing with the law is it exposes our sin, it doesn't cause our sin. Our sin problem is not the law's problem. The law exposes it, and I'll go ahead and get ahead of myself. The law stirs up our sin problem to make it obvious. But nothing's wrong with the law. Here's the problem. Say, so then what's the whole issue? 
The issue is when we get the law of God that came 3,400 years ago, the law that was given to Moses, here's the problem. When we read that and we try to use it as a road to spiritual life, here's the problem. When I read the laws of God, the do's and the do-nots, the commands and the prohibitions, and I come to this conclusion, if I'll do the, the, the commands and abstain from the prohibitions, then that'll lead me to spiritual life. It'll be a way to, justi- be, to be justified. God will have to declare me righteous if I do all those things and I don't do those things. Surely it's a road to spiritual life. And Paul is teaching us, if you look at the law as a way to get saved, you miss it. You totally miss it. The law is not the problem. We're the problem. The law stirs up our sin. Put a marker, if you would, Romans chapter 6. Go with me, if you would, just for a moment. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. And you might even want to leave you a little marker when you get there. And you see, I think those references are in your handout. You may want to take this home and kind of study this up. Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to give you a few seconds of background. You ready? Here's what happened. Paul gets saved. Paul was an enemy of the church. He meets Jesus Christ. He believes in Jesus Christ. He gets some special training. And he has a burden for people who haven't heard that the Messiah has come. So Paul goes on the first of what's called these three or four missionary journeys. And he starts these churches. Catch what I'm about to say. Paul goes to the Jewish synagogues and a few people get saved. They put their faith in Jesus, but usually not that many. And he's kind of kicked out usually. And he goes to the Gentiles and he tells them that God has sent a savior because you could never be good enough. But if you'll believe that what his son did on the cross was enough to pay for all your sins, you will go to heaven. And people believed and these churches were started and then Paul moves on, right? He's moved on, got to tell more people. But then Paul gets word that while he's gone, another group of people, we'll call them Judaizers or legalists, they come along behind Paul and they meet these people and they say, you guys think you're going to heaven? Oh yeah, well I notice you're not at the synagogue, I notice you're not at the Jewish synagogue services. Well, we don't really have to do that, we're just kind of our own church. Oh really? Well you you did get circumcised, right? Circumcised? No, we haven't done that. Paul didn't tell you about being circumcised? No. No. Is that important? Important. (laughs) And they've got Bible. And so they go to the Bible. And they look at this. And all of a sudden, these people that were Paul's followers and that trusted Jesus only, all of a sudden, they're reading this Old Testament. And it's confusing. This looks right. And word gets back to Paul. And there's a big conference. And then Paul writes this book of Galatians. You know what it's about? Galatian people. Did you let them dupe you? Did you really let them make you think that I forgot to say something about circumcision? I didn't tell you Gentiles you had to be circumcised to go to heaven because you do not have to be circumcised. Look at chapter 5, verse number 1. For freedom, man, this is going to sound, you say, man, this sounds a lot like Romans 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Free from what? We're free from sin. We're free from the law's demands. Stand firm, therefore. Don't let anybody move you from this. You don't let any preacher come behind me, Paul, saying, and, and undermine my teaching. I told you everything you need to know to be saved. So chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go under the slavery and the yoke of the law. Look, I, Paul, it's me, say to you, now here it comes, he's going to get rough with his congregation. It's by letter. He's not there in person. 
He'll come back though. I, Paul, say to you, now Christians this morning, you need to hear this, or professed Christian in this congregation, you need to hear this. If Paul were here this morning, he would tell us, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again. It's this important. I'm going to say it again. Every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So all that means is, if you said you trusted Jesus when I was there and then I moved on and these other teachers came behind me, false teachers, and they started talking about circumcision, I'm telling you right now, if you, here's, here's what he's saying, I'm reading between the lines. If you go out and get circumcised just to be sure, just to seal the deal, then you are cut off from Christ. Then you are not with Christ. Verse 4 puts it even stronger. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Verse number 3, if you, Paul's just going to say, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, if you go out and get circumcised to seal the deal, then you better keep the whole law because where does it stop? Somebody comes in and says, hey, did he not tell you this? And they break out Old Testament scriptures, the law. You got to do this and this and this. Oh, Wow. I guess I better get circumcised. Once they do that, then you know what they're going to do? Now, do you wash your hands the proper way? What do you mean? Well, you got to let it run off of the wrist and off of the fingers and off of the wrist. I, I don't know. You still offer sacrifices, right? I didn't know we have to. You go to Jerusalem once a year, don't you? You've not done that? Oh, I wouldn't want to be you. I've just been trusting Jesus. That'll never work, right? You better start doing these things. And before long, you're under the yoke of the law. Just the same Old Testament. My pastor hammered this for what? About two years, Deanna? Two or three? Three years. I finally got it. It's Jesus and Jesus only. Verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, that's the key, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Only faith working through love. So here's two people. Paul says, you better not be trusting circumcision. And over here's one poor fella. I've been circumcised. I got circumcised before I trusted Christ. Dude, that's okay. That's fine. I haven't been circumcised. That's okay. It's fine. You both trust in Christ? Yeah. Good. There's, there's your answer. Verse number 13. For you were called to freedom. Come on, Galatians. You were called to freedom, brothers. Now, this sounds like Romans 6.15. Now, let's be clear. So I don't have to keep the law? No, you don't have to keep the law. Now, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What that means? Don't just say, hey, I don't have to worry about the law. I don't have to keep the law. I'm not under the law. I can just go commit all kind of sin. Hang on. He says, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, one phrase, one idea. Here it is. Grace view, if you don't hear anything I say, if you don't hear a word I say, get this verse. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, here, if you don't hear what I say, catch verse 16. You say, Jeff, what's the, what's the takeaway today? Walk by the Spirit. Live life loving people, loving God, walking by the Spirit. Holy Spirit, what should I do? Don't do that. 
do this. Don't do that. What? Holy Spirit, I want to be obedient. Should I be quiet? Oh, turn that off. Okay, get this out. Talk to you. Go talk to them. Give this. Use my hands how? Use my feet where? Use my mouth to do what? Watch these things. Don't watch those things. Walk by the Spirit. You say, well, what would that result in? You'll be doing everything the Old Testament said do and then some, but you'll be doing it for the right reason. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Holy Spirit is the one who wrote the Old Testament. He's not going to lead you against the law, but he'll move you above the law. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I told you it sounds a lot like Romans 6, if you would make your way back to Romans 6 quickly. So what was Paul's point there? Ready? As you're looking back to Romans 6, here's what he's saying. Hey, grace for you, individual person here this morning. As if I were talking straight to you or Paul's talking straight to you, here's what he's saying. You can try to go to heaven by grace where God gives you salvation for free just by trusting Jesus. Or you can attempt to try to go by learning the law and keeping all the rules of the law. By the way, I'll go ahead and tell you this never works. Not one person's in heaven because of this one. But you can go this way by grace or you can try to go this way by works. But one thing you cannot do is try to have any kind of combination of the two. You say, no, 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 no. I realize it's grace and that's why I'm going 60, 40. No, no percentage. No, no, okay, I get it, I get it. It's... 90-10. It's Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross and I'm doing my part. It's that little phrase, you doing your part that's mucking it all up. Paul says in Galatians 5, if you do that, then Christ is of no help to you. You've, you've severed yourself from Christ. You say, did those people lose their salvation in, in Galatians 5 where he talks about them being severed? No. What he's saying is they didn't lose their salvation. They're proving they never were saved. If they got sucked in to put in their faith in something else, all they did is prove that apparently Jesus wasn't enough. I concluded in 1979 Jesus was enough because he is. I don't have to keep the law. But you can't have both. He's saying, yeah, but Jeff, it's, I'm going 99.999% Christ. Yeah, that 0.001% will send you to hell. And that's what Galatians is teaching. Let me touch this for a moment. Law, we're hearing a lot about law, right? The law had three parts. Say, what are three parts? There was a civil law in the Old Testament. There was a ceremonial law. It had to do with those hand washings and you can eat that and you can't eat that and you have to offer these sacrifices. The ceremonial law, if you'll get this, is, is pointing to Christ to come. And then there's the moral law. Now I'm going to get tricky for a moment. The moral law, you say, what's that? Let's just call it the Ten Commandments. The more, did you know the moral law and the teachings of the New Testament cover the same territory? The stuff that's taught in the moral law is taught in the New Testament with an exception. Bagodea, and I'm, I, st- I am correctable here if someone can prove this to me. Nine out of the ten of the Old Testament Ten Commandments are reiterated either directly or indirectly in the New Testament. You say, so Old Testament law, New Testament teachings of Jesus and the apostles and the epistles, then what's the difference? The difference is several fold. I'm going to give you the two main ones. The two main ones are this. The New Testament is much more about the inside of a person, whereas the Old Testament, it was, people were happy to just have the externals, right? Hey, I'm not committed adultery. I've never touched her. 
But Jesus says, but you're thinking it. I never committed murder. But you have hatred. And if your heart were truly exposed, what you're in essence saying, I never committed murder. But if I were, they're the ones I would do it to. But I'm keeping the law. New Testament, it goes to the heart. The second thing that's the major difference between the the old and the newer emphasis is what fuels them. What fuels the motivation? What causes the person to try to do this? If you try to keep the Old Testament law as a road to heaven, as a means to have a relationship with God, it never works. The New Testament is internal and it changes the whole motivational dynamic. Here's Paul's theology in Romans 6. You ready? I'm going to be real basic. You say, Jeff, this message is kind of deeper. I get it. I've struggled with verse 14. You say, it's kind of going over my head. Can I say something a third grader will understand? Third grader will get this. Our next two notes. Paul's theology in Romans 6 is that we don't have to strive fruitlessly to meet the demands, the commands and prohibitions of the law The law of Moses, we don't have to do that as a means, catch this, of having a relationship with God. I'm going to do the law and that will help me have a relationship with God. I'm going to keep the law and that will ensure that I go to heaven. No, you don't have to do that anymore. Here's the difference. I'm going to really blunt. promise you a third grader could understand this. You say, Jeff, I'm a Christian. The only reason you have a relationship with God The only reason you will go to heaven, you ready, is because God wants you to. You say, that's real simple. Why did you pause? Because most people don't think of it that way. I'll say it again. If If you have a relationship with God and if you really are on your way to heaven, the only reason is because God wants you to. And he gave it to you as a gift. That's grace. Grace is, I want you to have a relationship with me. Okay. You're going to live with me in heaven. Okay, and at that moment, you don't even have to move your hands like I did, but in your heart, your core, you hear God's truth, and you say, in essence, silently, you don't have to move your vocal cords, God promises, all that come to me, I will not cast out. All that the Father's given me, they will come to me, I will not cast them out. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You hear that, eternal life. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, they'll have everlasting life. Okay. And God gives you a relationship and eternal life in heaven because he wants you to have it. He gives it to you for free. That's grace. Here's the key. If that's real, that stirs up in a person a response. God, you love me and you give me salvation for free. I literally don't have to do one thing to go to heaven. I just receive what Jesus, he did all the work. I did, yeah, it's, it's 1,000%. So I just receive it. I don't know about you, but Paul's point is when a person does that, their response back is, well, you're a great God. Thank you. I don't have to do anything. I'm never going to go to hell. You're never going to go to hell. I love you. Love changes everything. Now you're not trying to perform your way to heaven. 
He's done all the work, gives it to you for free, and you have this response back of love. And oh, by the way, here's a little kicker. God puts his Holy Spirit in your body, and he becomes the enabler to have victory over sin. You say, so Jeff, what's the answer to verse 14? The answer is you stop trying to earn your way to heaven, and the reason sin will not have dominion over you is because when you get saved and you realize the grace of God, you start loving him back, and now I want to please you, not to earn my way to heaven, not selfishly, because I'm afraid of you. I now love you. I want to make you happy. And you put your Holy Spirit in me, to give me the ability to live this life. I'm not going to live it perfectly, but I'm on the road of sanctification. That's why sin will not have dominion over you, Christian. That's why. It's a liberating dynamic. I don't have to earn my salvation. Here's one thing I've learned. I've seen this in basketball a lot of times. Championship game. High school, college, NCAA championship, Monday night in April. NBA championship, FIBA World Cup, whatever it is. I've seen this so many times. Last 20 seconds, team A is up by two. Dude's at the free throw line. Great shooter. Not good. Great shooter. Up by two. He's got two shots. Just make one, dude. You just make one. The worst they can do is tie us with a three. I've seen him miss two free throws. Why? Pressure. Pressure. Listen. They don't miss it left. They don't miss it right. Where do they usually miss it? They come up short. Why? Because muscles are all tight. Everything's strained. That's, that's trying to go to heaven by living under the law. I'm afraid. Okay, what are the rules? I, I got to do this. Okay, guys, I'm telling you this morning, if, God gave, if, you're un, if you're not a Christian, God gave you a completely brand new clean slate. You have no sin. Starting right now, you'll blow it in the next hour. Because you're like, oh, I gotta, I just gotta make the whole team's counting on my eternity's riding on me doing. And you may get it for a little while, but you will buckle under the pressure. I'm not a good golfer. Anybody that ever goes with me, in three seconds on the tee box, they realize he has a baseball grip and he's squeezing the life out of that club. <laughs> they tell me if you have a lighter grip, you actually hit it farther. It just doesn't feel right to me. Bless his heart, Gary, the first time he went with me, he was like, you know, if you'll lighten up on that club, I'm choking it, man. Why? Because it's, i got to do this, and i got to force it. And he's like, all right. Gary's 70 and hits the ball at least, if not farther than I. It's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. They let me hit from the gold or whatever it is, and they still hit it farther than I do. Why, I'm choking that club. That's what we do in Christian life, isn't it? I gotta, okay, I'm saved. But now I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta keep my relationship with God by keeping the law. Dude, lighten up. God loves you. He loves you. Denny worded it this way. Did you write this down? It's a great quote. It's not restraint, but inspiration which liberates from sin. Not Mount Sinai, but Mount Calvary which makes saints. You say, what's the answer to the question verse 14? It's not, i got to earn my way to heaven. It's not, whoa, don't do that, don't do that, I have to do that. It's this. Wait a minute, Jesus did all the work. But Mount Sinai says this. And then Mount Calvary says, hey, I love you, I've done all the work. You want to go to heaven? Trust me, I give it to you for free. And you go, okay, relax. Now, that's verse 14. So here we hear that, and I know there's somebody in the building right now, they're thinking... Boy, I hope he tells them the rest of it. Actually, here's the rest of it, okay? Would you look at verse 15? 
What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Chapter 6, verse number 1, are we to wallow in sin so that it'll magnify God's grace and show how really, truly gracious God is by all the bad sin he, he forgives? Let's go ahead and do lots of sin so everybody will see just how gracious. Now, that's silly. That's ridiculous. Verse 15 is a whole different question. Should we? Okay, hold on. Hold on. We're Christians. Not even talking about wallowing in sin as a lifestyle, but should... Hey, listen, Grace, for you. Personally, take this in. Ask the Holy Spirit to dial you in right now. Should I? commit acts of sin I'm going to paraphrase because I can I mean you just said we're not earning our pressures off I'll just take a lighter grip on life I'll just chill I like this guy he's my kind of preacher I thought Paul was rough but man I like where he's going so we'll just chill and do nothing right God forbid never let it be said Really? That's your response? Could I ask it this way? Be, I'm going to make a statement. Somebody's not going to like it, but this is the truth. Here it comes. Being under grace does make us exempt from eternal punishment. My question is, you gotta, you've got to go there. You've got to use your imagination. If you really were exempt and the rules and punishments do not apply to you, let's just get practical If you were exempt from the speed limit laws or anything that happens because of you breaking everyone else's speed limit laws, be honest, would you really go 80 miles an hour through Westside's zone there at 745 on a school morning? Would you really? If nobody could do a thing about it, you're exempt. Because Christians are exempt. We're living above the law. Would you? If you could get by with it, and there's just a, we'll call them seasoned saints. I'm not going to call them old. But there's a seasoned saint. I was thinking of Miss Faye, but I don't see Miss Faye this morning. I was going to pick on her. Now, by the way, she's a little spunky, and she does have that cane, so watch out. All right? (laughs) But if you were exempt, and you thought, I like that little sky blue Volkswagen bug, and you're exempt, and you could physically overpower Miss Faye. And get by with it. And no ramifications. Would you? Would you? If you could just by force, just go take someone's house. Or by force or by wooing. I want their spouse. I think I got a shot with her. And there's no ramifications. You're exempt. Would you? If you're saying, yeah, I would zip through there at 745, 80 miles an hour. I might like that that little car. I might like their house. And I think I will take their spouse. Something is wrong with you. You don't love God because anybody who understands grace and receives grace is not going to obey out of fear but love. God, I'm not going to do those things. I love Miss Faye. I'm glad she has that car. I'm not going to do that to my brother. With his wife? I'm not taking that, guys. Are you kidding? No way. If you could exempt, you were exempt and could blaspheme the name of God, would you? He's keeping you out of hell right now. Listen carefully. 
If you have ever one time, ever once in your life, truly trusted Christ, you have received eternal life, can never, ever be lost. Never be lost. You will never, if you've ever done it one time, you put your faith and trust in Christ, and it was real, I'm trusting you and you only, you will never face that sin in the next life. You cannot go to hell. Here's my question. Does the knowledge of eternal security, does that make you want to sin intentionally? If so, you have issues. You're acting like a person who isn't saved. Verse 15 again. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it slightly stronger. Here we go. Many people are afraid of where grace will lead. Man, if this guy keeps preaching this way, he's going to have a very fleshly, worldly, carnal congregation. I'll go ahead and tell you. It's true. This is what's true. Being a Christian... Being under grace is like going through life in a specially marked vehicle that all the law enforcement officers, be it city, county, state, or federal, all of them recognize, oh yeah, they're off limits. They're outside of our jurisdiction. We have no authority over them. Aren't you going to do something about that one there, sir? Them? Follow me. Them? In that vehicle? That's the king's kids. That's the king's kids. What does that mean? Do they not have to... King's kids are exempt. We're just law enforcement. They're not under our laws. If you're a Christian, you're above the law. Now here's my question. Does that make you want to go out and just commit intentional sin or does that stir something in you? Wait a minute. We're the king's kids? That makes me want to live to another level. Very quickly. Matthew 19. I'm going to just read this. Matthew 19. I'll I'll leave it with you. It's just an example we can put our teeth into. Matthew 19, look at verse number 3. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him. They've got a question. Is it lawful? Lawful. Is it okay? Is it lawful? Here it comes. Let's put this into life. Pharisees, the enemies of Christ, by the way, they love the law. They love the law. And they know the law. They come up to Christ and test him by asking, Jesus, uh, and again, I'm paraphrasing, we were, we've heard tales of you as a 12-year-old boy confounding some of our best teachers. You were answering their questions and they couldn't answer your stuff. You apparently, and you didn't go to any of the schools. So you're supposed to be all about knowing what the law means. We have a question for you. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Can a guy divorce his wife? Is that lawful? Jesus answered, verse 4, have you not read? Have you guys not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Have you not read that? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's what happens. Hey, we got a law question. Jesus says, I hear your law question out of Deuteronomy. I know you got your Bible. But you want to talk about Deuteronomy. I want to talk about Genesis. Let's talk about God's intention. Let's not just focus on what the law allows. Here's God's intention. And they think they have him trapped. So verse number 7. We got him. He fell for it. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Ha! Deuteronomy 24. You don't know your Bible, Jesus. Verse 8. He said to them, You want to know why he allowed that? Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. That's not the intention. 
I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and by the way, that is not adultery there, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. You know what Jesus is saying? Hey, Grace Field, I'm going to tell you. If you're a Christian, it's true. If you're a Christian, you can get divorced. You can. And you'll not go to hell. I like this guy. But you'll also not be fulfilling the vow you took. And you'll not be living up to the real purpose of marriage. You know what marriage really is? Hey, husband, you're in the position of Christ. Wife, you're in the position of the church. Our marriages are supposed to be a picture of forgiveness, because it takes forgiveness in marriage, of love that is unending and of permanence. Because when Christ married me in 1979, it's permanent. And so when we on earth in our Christian marriages decide, hey, it's got a little hard, I'm checking out. Deuteronomy 24, okay, you can. You can do Deuteronomy 24, but you're not living up to the whole purpose. You're not giving the picture to the world. You're not loving properly. Man, if this guy preaches that way, nobody's going to give to the church. Yeah, Old Testament demanded 10%. I'll tell you, if people will fulfill what Romans 6 is talking about and fall in love with God and love their brother, 10% will get left in the dust. You won't give 10%. You'll give 10% and then some for the right motive. Paul is talking about something way more powerful and fear, love. But if he keeps preaching that, people are not going to live right. Can I just remind you of this? Literally, I'm closing. The law, did it ever really have lasting change? No. Did it have inward change? No. Love. I, I keep referring. He passed away one year ago today. I remember my pastor telling me in a private conversation, he says, if we ever get our congregation, he said, one main thing is the main thing every time. Love, 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 love. If we love God, here's what I find. He taught me this. If we love, love will not allow other gods. Love will not allow idols. But look how pretty this idol is. Or conjure up an image of God. No, I love God too much. He blows that away. Love will not allow blaspheming. And I'm not not blaspheming the name of the Lord out of fear or what he might do to me. No, I love him. Love will not allow dishonoring to mother and father. Love will not allow murder because it doesn't allow hate. Love will not allow adultery. Why would I do that to my brother in Christ by hurting him with his wife? Why would I do that to my wife, hurting her? Why would I do that to my sister in Christ? Why would I do that? If I love her, I want her to have a good... No, it doesn't matter. She's not a Christian. She's unsaved. Then she needs to get saved. Is that what she needs to see from a Christian? Is that we do that? Love will not allow it. Love will not allow me to steal. I want you to have your things. Love will not allow me to envy and, and be desirous of yours. I'm glad you have those. Love won't let me lie against you. It's about love. My question is, where is your love? Because if you'll love, sin will have no dominion over you. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Simple, simple questions today. The first one's the most important question. When I say heads bowed, eyes closed, that is not a time to check out. That is a time for us to remove all distractions that come through our eye gate. Try to focus with the Lord. Bring Him more into focus than my voice. And really... 
If I could prompt you with just a few questions, Christian, let's start with the main one. You ready? How is your love for God? How is it? How is your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? How is it? Really try to answer that. Gauge it somehow. You say, Jeff, I don't really know. I'm going to give you a hint. Your recent life tells the story. Your recent life tells you where your love is. And if you say, Jeff, I know I'm a Christian, but my love is not where it needs to be, then you've really been battling sin lately, haven't you? I'm going to invite you. This could be in an altar. This could be sitting right there. I want you to follow the leading of the Lord. By the way, don't let pride keep you in a seat if the Lord's saying, go, get this right on bended knee. And never come to an altar to be seen. Just obey the Lord. But here's the question. If you say, boy, my love is really lacking toward God or lacking toward my neighbor, be it an unsaved person or or a Christian, beg God, God, help me to love you more. God, help me spend some time thinking about what you did saving me from an eternal hell that I deserve. And you give me all these good things. God, let me spend more time thinking on that and dwelling on that so that I'll love you more. Christian, second question. Second question. You ready? Here it is. Has assurance of eternal security. And you say, I've been saved long enough to know I can never lose it. That is wonderful. Here's my question. Has knowledge that you can never lose your salvation, has that let you kind of just slip into lukewarmness towards some specific sin? Like that sin is okay because, hey, I go to heaven. I'm going to enjoy heaven, so I'm going to enjoy this sin, this particular one. I've been kind of flirting with it, and it's actually dictating in my life, even though it has no authority, but I've been yielding to it. I'm going to invite you to do this right now. On your seat, at an altar, real simple. God, I am treasuring a sin more than I treasure you. I desire a sin more than I desire you, God. I'm sorry. Will you help me to see you more clearly? I've been losing the daily battle to a specific sin and I shouldn't. It has no authority. And then thirdly, kind of playing off of last week where we started this week. Christian, are the members of your body, have they been presented as instruments, weapons in the battle? of the ages this week was your mouth available for God to use or was your mouth closed were your hands your mind your eyes or were you using your eyes as instruments for unrighteousness I don't know does there need to be some confession and repentance and prayer be it God remove that specific sin or Lord my sin is lovelessness or Lord selfishness Christian get that right this morning. Would you stand?